0: Welcome to Beyond Gameplay. I'm Kelly Dunlap. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Beyond Gameplay. This month we're exploring empathy in games. And in our first episode, we talked with Dr. Gabby Schlichtman about the psychological construct of empathy. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Karen Schreier. She's an associate professor and director of Games in Emerging Media at Morris College. She's been designing and researching games for decades, and she specializes in the intersection of games, learning, and empathy, specifically around how games can support social and emotional learning. And last but not least, she's a Belfer Fellow with the Anti-Defamation League, where she uses games to support bias reduction, compassion, and perspective taking. I've been lucky enough to work with Karen on past projects, and her insight and knowledge into empathy and games has really informed my work and inspired me going forward. So. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I had the privilege of facilitating a panel with you and a couple other um, educators and game designers around empathy games. And you have a really fantastic article that you published through UNESCO about the strengths and limitations of empathy games. And all that is background for our, our listeners, and that will all be in the show notes as well. And so what I, what I want to dive into is kind of what you touched on relatively early in your UNESCO paper. And you did a something that I, I thought was really fascinating, is you looked at the history of media as an empathy machine. And so I, I'm hoping you can like, take me in the way back machine.
1: So yeah, so I was uh, when I was writing that part of the UNESCO paper, I was really thinking to myself that one of the biggest struggles as a human being, is that we can't step out of our own selves and really truly understand what someone else has gone through or what they're going through. And that, you know, because we are so bounded by our skin, you know, and our bodies and our beings and our minds, we can't ever really like, we can't just like leap into someone else's mind. So You know, I was thinking that, you know, one of the kind of nice things about media is that it allows us to, you know, maybe not fully engage in someone else's being, but it gives us a moment, a little inkling of what. Someone else has gone through it. Someone else's story. So that's the, the essence of a like, shared humanity is that we want we want to be able to empathize with each other. We want to be able to step inside each other's hearts and minds and get a little flavor of who they are and, and the, 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 what they've walked through to get to where they are. And I think, uh, you know, games are just another way. You know, and I think that each medium has, Their strengths and their weaknesses. And in this particular article, we were outlining, well, what are those for games specifically?
0: And so, high level, what did you find in terms of the strengths and weaknesses of games as vehicles for empathy?
1: A lot of it is just like how you use the medium, too. So, you know, some of the things that we found that are elements that might support empathy, which, by the way, also are findings and elements that i thrive talks about in their design kits things like a powerful story um, being able to immerse in that story um, being able to have characters that you might relate to and that you might connect with or that you might communicate with and tell your story to Um, having meaningful choices and consequences that you might engage with or having uh, the ability to Engage with different points of view and perspectives. And also one of the the things that Paul Darvasi brings up that's a really good point in his uh, UNESCO paper is that sometimes you do need, like, a little distance almost from those perspectives in that, you know, if you're just in a first-person perspective, you're not necessarily going to empathize with the character that you're playing as. So, like, maybe you're not empathizing with your avatar because you are the avatar, but you might empathize with other characters and what they're going through.
0: Yeah. For, like, example, when you're playing from a first-person perspective, you are that character. And when something happens to the character in the game, it feels like it's happening to you, the player. Yeah. First-person perspectives, um, you know, allow us to project ourselves into the experience. Yeah. Uh, rather than viewing the player or character as like a separate thing. And because you are so part of that world, it becomes much easier to connect empathetically with characters in the game.
1: So it's kind of interesting, this idea that, you know, while we think, you know, we only empathize with human beings, we often find that we empathize with even virtual virtual people, but also virtual objects. and, And a lot of that is, that if you have interactions with them and you're playing together and you rely on each other, um, over time you build the kind of relationship that you need to have trust and intimacy, and that supports the uh, emp- practice of empathy as well. Uh, there's so many other elements, though. So I, you know, I urge you to check out the paper, but also that there's al- there's also just so much less unknown, right, about games and about humanity. I mean, we really. Still don't know, like, what is it? Like, what's the special sauce that gets us to uh, really have that kind of compassion and heart for each other?
0: I right now am having like very strong emotional reactions, thinking back to the emotional attachment and the empathic attachment that I had to the companion cube.
1: Yeah, exactly. From from Portal. Yeah.
0: And feeling like really guilty (laughs) about what I did to it. Um, And just that to amplify, uh, rather, to exemplify that, that was. It wasn't a character. It, did never,
1: it never did anything, but you cared about it. And right. That's, and you played so with her, it, right? You did. I mean, it was your companion. It was a companion. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. The reason I actually said object is because when I've talked about this, people have always I mean, not just you, but everyone raises their hand and like talks about the companion cube. I mean, it really is a very evocative object. And I think that we can all think of, you know, even in our everyday lives, there's objects that have special meaning for us, and that object might be different for different people, and we, you know, personalize it in different ways. But I think that, you know, that's part of being human, too. You know, it's it's building relationships with other people, but also the, the tools and the things in our lives that help us become who we are.
0: Why empathy in games? Out of all the psychological constructs that games could have latched onto, yeah. is there something special or just like inherent in
1: games that gravitate towards empathy? Well, every medium, again, like I've mentioned, has strengths and weaknesses. And I think that games are no different. You know, I think that they're another way to explore our humanity. I do think that people are more surprised, maybe, when it comes to games, because we Kind of have these moral panics around games and and certainly there are spaces that are the opposite of empathy you know i mean it's you know just like there's a, a dark side to uh, all different facets of humanity um games are uh an expression of humanity and as such they have their own dark side Um, So there are ways to use it for good and for practice of compassion and and love and care. And then there's ways to use it for toxicity and bullying and harassment. There's a game called loneliness, which is just like black on white, um, little squares that move around and you play as one square, you go toward a grouping of other little squares and they move away and then you you move your square up, up. up again toward another little patch of squares and they move away. And you feel the uh abandonment, the um rejection through that game. Uh it's powerful. You know, it, it doesn't have uh, well, it doesn't have any color, it doesn't have any writing, it doesn't have a deep storyline. I mean, it really is just a five-minute evocative emotional game, but through playing the game you understand better what the designer was going through, feeling rejected as well. So I think that, um, you know, I think there's different ways that games can both abstractly and also narratively and many other ways. I mean, even ways that we haven't discovered yet um, help us to understand ourselves and understand each other.
0: You had the game Limb. Yeah, to Lim,
1: which, by the way, is not available online anymore. I, I really oh, no. had some trouble finding it because I used to play it with my students all the time. Similar kind of game where you're playing as a colorful square and you're trying to uh, find your way through a little maze and the squares keep pushing you out. They push you out of, in, in different ways and you feel like you have to, look. you know, you have to pass, right, look like them um, to be able to be accepted by them and how hard it is to then not be able to pass you know if you don't pass you get pushed away and how how uh, hard it is to deal with that kind of rejection so
0: one thing i've I found really curious as i've been researching empathy for this podcast series and just my my work in general is that games that come across as empathy games or seem to have really strong resonant emotional components they seem to focus on unpleasant emotions like mm. grief and guilt yeah. and discomfort yeah, yeah. and I would love your thoughts on the idea or just what's like bubbling up in my brain at this moment is that the games that do this well are ones that tap into like universal human experiences. Like, yeah, everyone will feel grief. Everyone will feel sadness. Everyone will feel like loss and the like the sting of the reject of being rejected. Yeah. And I'm curious because they tend to not focus on more pleasant emotions like joy. Yeah, and... Well,
1: it's interesting. Those are universal emotions, too, right? So there's, you know, things like sadness, but then there's also joy. And the, there's also, you know, I mean, anger. I mean, there's, so you know, there's other emotions.
0: Like all the inside out yeah. characters. Yeah, sure. I mean, they based
1: <laughs> it on Ekman's work, right? So it uh, makes sense. Actually, one of the things that I did with my students is is I challenged them to create games about so we, you know, we we thought about all of those emotions. So we thought about joy and anger and uh, sort of these like common emotions that that people have. But I kind of challenged them and said, okay, here's a list of emotions that are really difficult. Like maybe not difficult to feel, but maybe difficult to design for. And and the question is, you know, are there some emotions that are harder to create an experience of than others? You know, maybe. And I don't know, this is a question that we should think about. Is it easier to make a game that's sad or, or, um, that incites sadness than it is to make a, a game that incites happiness? It's a, it's a good question to, to think about. But, um, with, with this, uh, exercise I had my students do, they, they had to do, um, games about emotions like serenity or, uh, guilt or, um, contempt. Or just kind of like a little bit more nuanced to the emotion. And they made brilliant games about these, um, emotions that, that really evoked them in different ways. Though they also struggled with these, you know, these kind of more nuanced emotions. And it, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, it's an interesting question to really think about. Uh, maybe it's, is it maybe harder or is it maybe that we just haven't challenged ourselves enough? So we've talked about,
0: like, what contributes to how people connect with games, the kind of emotions that can be evoked by games. But I want to step back a little bit. Earlier, you talked about how empathy can have a downside. Yeah. And I didn't get a chance to follow up at that moment, but that's what I'm super hoping that can talk a little bit more about. There's even a
1: downside to being, you know, overwhelmed with your emotions, right? Because if you're overwhelmed with your own emotions it's harder to then reach out and connect to someone that uh, maybe needs it. You know, it's harder to, to really place yourself beside them and say, hey, you know, I want to know what you are feeling. It's really hard to do that if you're so overwhelmed with your own sadness or even your own happiness or, or whatever emotion it is um, to reach out to someone else. But so there is almost like a downside to empathy. Uh, You know, if we get too over-involved with someone else, it could also be detrimental to us, or it might even cause us not to make the best decisions that we need to make.
0: Speaking of moral quandaries, is there a game that's made you empathize with a person or situation you ordinarily wouldn't empathize with?
1: Actually, it's funny, because, and this is kind of maybe sad to me because maybe I just don't know my American history that well, But I spent a lot of time playing Red Dead Redemption 2 over the last few months. And I'll be honest, like, I learned a lot from playing that game about American history because that game really did a great job at helping you maybe, you know, empathize with the Wild Wild West mentality of you know, the police are kind of in my way, and law is sort of too structured, and I want my, I have my way of life, and I want to be able to live it, and I don't, you know, I don't want to be constrained in that way, you know, constraining law, uh, and, and, because, you know, which is better, and, and, you know, it's, it's hard to remember that that, really underscores our, um, our government and our, you know, our civic structure, but also our people and the citizens. And, and those, those are, those are two very strong um opinions about who we are as, as a people. And I, the game helped me get that. I mean, you know, maybe I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm reading too much into it. I really, you know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds, you know, like Red Dead Redemption, the creator's, so this game that was created by the makers of Grand Theft Auto, Rockstar, you know, there, um, you know, you think, oh, yeah, you know, there's lots of gunplay, there's lots of violence, there's lots of killing and murder and all sorts of things that parents need their kids to participate in. But on the other hand, it's deep, you know, it's a deep character study, but it's also a deep um, study of America. And I think that there's so much more nuance to games than people really um, give it credit for. So
0: I haven't had a chance to play Red Dead Redemption 2, but I put a lot of hours into Red Dead Redemption 1. Oh,
1: yeah. I played all of Red Dead Redemption 1. I felt like I had to keep going, right? So good.
0: So good. Um, But it's interesting because this kind of ties into a conversation that I had with um, Peter McDonald, where he talked about... um, empathy being misused so that you train players to empathize with the oppressor oh, interesting. because as, you're, as yeah. you're talking about rdr and you know being on the wild west and bucking the yeah. law so to speak you know there's in my mind i'm thinking well you know there were in the indigenous cultures yeah. that were there and oh, yes yeah. you are exploring your freedom as yeah the the character and you're you know saying no to the man yeah but in a way it's also kind of um Lending empathy to the idea that, you know, Manifest Destiny is something that was we were born to do. Yeah. And it might not be something explicit. Like it's not I'm not saying that the developers said, okay, we're gonna just pretend that this entire culture didn't exist while we were here and that manifest destiny wasn't a thing that happened. But I feel to your point, like it's so embedded in how yeah. um many of us are are educated yeah. and brought up as like this. This is the the narrative around right. the Wild West, right. and then we are like, yeah, you know, I That's empathize the with the outlaw, yeah.
1: and and in that sense, like again, it's well. The thing is, I don't normally empathize with outlaws, so for me, it was eye opening to have some more understanding of that. But actually, the game, um, depending on how you play, also gives uh, some quite quite a bit of resonance to indigenous stories now am I saying that it is authentic am I saying that it is uh, <laughs> a, 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 a really good uh, indigenous perspective no <laughs> but I mean but it's there you know but it, it definitely um there are characters that have very moving stories in the game um you know I don't want to give too much away but there are storylines that you can follow where you do learn quite a bit about the indigenous perspective um, in relation to uh the government and you can choose how you want to uh manage that relationship both with the indigenous folks and with the um, the government you know the, the kind of government the official response um, so you are kind of in the middle of that tension and it um, you know again it, it, is it supposed to be educational? No. Is it supposed to be accurate? No. Is it supposed to be edifying? No. Maybe not but it, it does give you um, I don't know I felt like for me it it put me in this historic moment that maybe I don't know a lot about and was never mm-hmm. interested in. Like I'm not a western bump at all and it was one way to compel me to be interested in a moment of American history that I, you know, would never have interacted with otherwise. Uh, so,
0: yeah. you're the one who introduced me to the concept of historical empathy. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Do you feel like me? that, that this, Yeah. Yeah, yes, um, so, uh, uh, so do you think this is an example of you I, having yeah. interest and perspective and something that maybe... Yeah, I mean, I think,
1: I think so, but, you know, I don't want to get people's, uh, you know, stuff in a bunch kind of thing, because it, I um, I agree that it's not accurate, but, but the question is, does something need to be historically accurate? to be able to be historically empathetic. And I don't think so. You know, I think that if you're able to start to embrace a moment from history and to embrace the different perspectives that were established there, that's meaningful because the, those were not personally perspectives I've really thought about in my day-to-day life. I did not think about, a, 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 you know, a cowboy type of situation.
0: Ever and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about some of the games that are literally just squares, yeah, but they can still make you feel something and have a sure. perspective shift, yeah, this
1: is the opposite of squares though I mean this game yes. <laughs> was so intensely designed um, artistically and programmatically i mean you're you're Riding your horse and all of a sudden there's rain and you, you get a chill. Like, I would get a chill because I really felt like it was raining. I felt that when I was riding around because it was so evocative in that way. And also just to see the sights, you know, again, is it historically accurate? No. You know, but it's based on a historic moment, based on historic themes, based on historic attentions. Uh, to me, that is, I mean, that's a kind of historic empathy. Uh, and I would, you know, as a teacher, you probably wouldn't use this in your class because it's such a long game. I mean, it could take 300 hours just to play it. But you might, if you were using it in an educational way, you might ask, you know, well, what what is different about history versus this game? You know, how does this game fit into things that we know happened uh, and how did it veer from those things? I think
0: that's a perfect Uh, Segue into another question I've been dying to ask you. Based on the UNESCO paper, there was a section there about the importance of self-reflection in games, in order for empathy to happen. And I am dying to know how do you design for self-reflection? And then you started talking about riding your horse in the rain and just like existing in the space. So, is do you feel like that was a moment where you could like reflect? on your experience yeah, in the game. And
1: I mean, I think every game does it differently. So some examples are life is strange. They have moments where you make these ethical choices and then you have to kind of go back in time and, and you can see the outcome and then you can rewind and kind of redo. And that is a kind of almost like a forced reflection on what the consequences were and then how you want to adjust your choice based on what that consequence was but what I think they did even better in Life is Strange in terms of reflection is that you can just sit on a bench Mm -hmm. and just look around just you know take a moment and just be there's a a piece that comes with that that does let you start to reflect on the choices you've made and uh, the people you've met and the stories you've heard—that I think is is quite um, not only beautiful but also useful for practicing empathy.
0: And it, it's—I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it just—it it's just a perfect fit. So one of the things that we're doing at iThrive right now is developing a curriculum around What Remains of Edith Finch. Oh yes, yeah. And we we just did um, like a workshop with some some high school kids using the curricula. And what they did was, you know, they would have one person playing and then a couple of people would watch as they played through the different chapters mm-hmm. of Edith Finch. And in talking with the team, what came up was the, the very, very... I mean, because I was raising the fact that I think that everybody should play the game because playing the game and having that agentic yeah. experience yeah. is a very different experience yeah. than, say, watching. Yeah. But what came up from the feedback was that Sometimes the people who are watching might feel, feel frustrated because they weren't in control, yeah. but they, they, and these are high school kids. Yeah. They noted that they had time to actually like sit yeah. back and observe yeah. the space in a, a broader sense and really take in the entire environment and think more deeply about that environment mm-hmm. compared to when they were playing. Cause when you're playing, you're so focused right. on achieving exactly. the task. Yeah. Um, and so that to me just feels like such a perfect example of even in a game where there's not a bench to sit on. Yeah. If you're watching someone there, there can be that space for reflection and thought.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always say, you know, if you're using a game in the classroom, uh, you know, take that time, whether it's in the classroom, afterward, during, you know, intervals in the game. Um, like you were saying, you if you have a little distance from the game, it helps you to reflect, to observe. Things that other people who are playing the game are not going to notice. I I do an exercise in my class that's really similar where I have one person play a game and the other person observe and then they switch. And they have to talk about the difference in playing versus observing and to kind of compare notes. Like this is what I saw and this is what I thought you were thinking and doing and and. You know, I, you know, they're not allowed to talk to each other while they're playing and observing, which is really hard for them because they're like, oh, my gosh, like, I want to tell them to go after that little dot or that star or whatever <laughs> it is. And I can't I can't tell them. Uh, and, that's, you know, I think that's part of it. I think part of it is is uh, the listening, you know, the real uh, engaged listening that you have when you are just observing and you're just taking it in and you're letting That other person or environment or experience um, kind of show you things. And, you know, sometimes people are so, like you said, wanting to take action and wanting to find and wanting to discover and wanting to achieve that they don't take the moment to listen and really hear and see and breathe what it is that they're that, you know, that they need to learn.
0: So that is totally me. I am very much give me the direction, point me, and I, like, I have to complete
1: that task. Yeah. I'm very
0: narrow. Like, when I play, well, that's... Well, everyone's
1: like that to some extent, right? Yeah. I mean, that Games are designed to make you want to do that. They're designed to make you want to take action. Well, it's so funny, because I'm thinking
0: about Skyrim, yeah. you know, uh, and for anybody who might not know, Skyrim is a, uh, a role-playing game with a very open, expansive world. Yeah. And when I play, like, I go down all the quests, I complete the quests in order, as designed, because I want to get to the end. And meanwhile, my spouse, he would, like, wander through the fields and just, like, I don't think he ever actually did the main quest. He, or any quests, he just, like, walked from one end of Cyrodiil to the other. And that's that's nice, you know? Yeah. Like, the fact that we can both have different play styles and take something away from that game. And now that I'm thinking about it, one of my favorite things to do in that game was to collect wildflowers so that I can make potions, but still like walking along and being in the fields. And I noticed in myself that while I was playing Skyrim, I started noticing flowers in real life. Oh my gosh. That's true. Oh, Nurnbrut. Oh wait, no, 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 no. I'm in the real world now. That's not, (laughs) oh, purple flower. That'll make good this. I know. And I thought that was so cool. And I, I never thought about that as being... Oh, yeah. Like until this moment, as, as something empathic or self reflective, like I'm now being more present in the moment. Yeah, I mean, when I was
1: playing Red Dead Redemption, too, I was supposed to be finding squirrels at some point, and I'd see these squirrels in my backyard, and I'd want to, like, get them, and I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not going to help you in the game. Because like for some reason I could not find squirrels in the game. Because like when you're actually looking for something that you need, you never find it. You never find it. But it's a rule. It just shows up. You know, in your world, you start noticing it more, and that's kind of the beauty of the games, I think, because they're not just changing you, right? And they're also kind of reshaping and reframing your world. Now, again, some people might say, well, then you're saying it causes aggression. You're saying it causes violence. Uh, You know. I'm not, I, no, like, I, I'm not saying it causes things. I'm saying that you are building a relationship with the game. And through that, you are changing the way you see the world, just like you would for any experience you're going through. And it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a negative thing, you know, it, it's differently. It could be that you start noticing colors differently. Like, I remember um, I was, and, and this is just, like, I was picking paints for my house. And I was, like, studying the paints and, like, really understanding, like, the differences in the whites, and I was noticing it. And then I noticed when I was driving, I looked at the asphalt, and the blue that I had taken for granted suddenly looked so different. Like, it looked so vibrant, and it looked all the, you know, I I started to see all these different shades and different, uh, you know, glimmers of different colors. And I never noticed it before. Suddenly the world was so much more colorful just because I was, like, focused on color more and i think uh you know i think there there's something to that just you know games help you you know focus your attention in ways that you maybe don't expect
0: and that they make those or they had the possibility to make those kinds of mundane things yeah. like valuable yeah. like the reason i was paying attention to the flowers in right. real life was that i was thinking about the flowers in the right. game and i would, the the color and the shape was you know triggering my lizard brain going ooh we want yeah. that and yeah so it's it's interesting how Based on you know, what the game is rewarding, or, or rather, what is valuable to you in the yeah. game, whether that's yeah. a flower, whether that's mammoth cheese, yeah. you know, whatever it is, squirrels, yeah, like you, you do yeah. carry that that with you, and I think that's so interesting because one of the the taglines for the show is uh, "What lives on when the game is turned off?" Right, and I think
1: we just answered that's, it. So I mean, that's go almost amazing that we ended up there because it really, yeah, I you know. And I'm not saying it changes you completely, but just like any experience, you're gathering them and you are, you know, it's shaping who you are and how you see the world and how you relate to others and how you connect to them. Well, I, I don't
0: think I could have predicted at the start of this that we would end up talking about like Red Dead
1: Redemption and Skyrim while we're talking about empathy games. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean those to me are some of the most compelling examples because they are meaningful to me at least in those ways. And I think that every game is meaningful for different people. So you out there, what games are meaningful for you?
0: Yeah, everybody should write in and answer that question because I think that's like I'm super curious. Like Halo, love that game. I have a lot of emotional attachment to it and it is super important to me because it's it's meaningful. Uh and I think that just underscores that the idea that if you want to make a game that is meaningful, you are somehow making, you have to make a Games for Change game or a social impact game, which there's nothing wrong with those kinds yeah, of games. Yeah, like right? I make those yeah. and I play them. But I, I think sometimes maybe with like the serious games movement, that by having the, the label of serious game and having empathy yeah. game, that by having something like that present, it somehow means that all the games that don't necessarily fit into that genre or somehow less or not. So I'm so glad that we talked about like large AAA titles as vehicles for
1: empathy because they, they certainly are. Absolutely. I mean, no one wants to make a forgettable game, right? So any game, even, you know, your big mainstream game, you want it to, you want it to matter, right? I mean, that's ultimately what you want. You want to make something that matters to, to your audience. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the idealistic. Yeah.
0: The designers. Yes. Yes the The companies and money might factor sure. in at some point. But for the designers, I absolutely agree. A, yeah. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for, sure, for talking yeah. with me and, and taking me on this journey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Huge thanks to Karen for being on the show and for sharing her expertise in empathy game research and providing critical insight for developers to help them understand that empathy is itself not inherently good and can even be harmful if not designed appropriately. I think... One of the biggest moments that resonated for me was the idea that you don't need to set out to make a, you know, capital E empathy game for players to experience empathy. Meaningful moments of connectedness and curiosity can come from a complex blockbuster to a surprisingly simple gameplay experience. And that's it for this episode of Beyond Gameplay. If you enjoyed our conversation today, I highly encourage you to check out the other empathy episodes in this initial series. So if you missed episode 1, that was with Dr. Gabby Schlickman as we talk about what empathy is as a psychological construct. Episode 3 is with Professor Peter McDonald and we dive deep into empathy and games as an aesthetic experience and even get into the idea of like discomfort design and like subversive gameplay. And last but not least, in episode four, I talk with lead game designer at Ubisoft Montreal, Asama Darius, about what it's like to work in a AAA game space, but still have empathy at the core. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at BeyondGamesCast. You can also find us on the interwebs at www.ithrivegames.org beyond-gameplay, or you can email us at beyondgameplay@ithrivegames.org. at Beyond Gameplay is a production of the iThrive Games Foundation, a 501c3 organization. For more information about how iThrive uses games and game design to prepare teens to thrive, visit us at ithrivegames.org. The show is hosted by me, Kelly Dunlap, and was produced by Sean Weiland with direction from Dr. Susan Rivers and Jane Lee. Our project manager, producer, and writer is Iam Trin. And our theme music is Mysteries and Inquiries by the noisy game maker, Ethan Goss-Alexander, who also helped edit this episode. Marketing and PR was coordinated by Kat Went. Special thank yous to Will Williams, Jonathan Elmergreen, Sierra Martinez, and Jess Class. Thank you for going beyond gameplay, where humanity is the core mechanic.